Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So my next interview is with Dr. Michael C. Klein. We talk about his new book, Dissident Doctor, My Life Catching Babies and Challenging the Medical Status Quo. What a pleasure it was to dive deep into this conversation with Michael about a whole lot of things. We talk about experience and about why he's been named a lifelong gadfly by, by others. We talk about how he spent most of his life rejecting the notion of, of a dispassionate doctor and why that listening is the essence of family practice done well. It's fascinating listening and, and, and how important is that in pretty much every relationship that we step into, it seems to me, and how people's stories are a part of the diagnosis and, and, and why family doctors need to be able to tolerate this thing called am- ambiguity. We talk about mentorship. We talk about his struggles with authorities. We talk about who, who his mentors were, but also uh, how important it is uh, to him to, to mentor uh, others as well and how you need to pattern yourself after somebody that you admire. Uh, by the way, you're going to love the book, uh, Dissident Doctor. It's, it's, it's on the shelves now. Uh, you're going to want to get it. Uh, this is a, a story and many stories wrapped within a story, it seems to me. Uh, they're funny. They're interesting. They go deep. They're full of insight. So uh, pick up the book. Hope you're going to enjoy the interview. In fact, I know you're going to enjoy the interview. Stay tuned. Uh, don't forget davidpecklive.com for more information about my speaking and my uh, writing. Uh, and also face-to-facelive.ca for a whole uh, slew of interviews with some pretty fascinating people doing some pretty remarkable things. Uh, stay tuned for uh, Dr. Mike. Michael Klein coming right up. Oh, and please, uh, if, if you don't mind, uh, take a few moments to, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please leave a, a review on iTunes. I know it would mean a great deal to me personally, but it means a whole lot to the digital world as well. Coming right up, Michael Klein, dissident doctor, don't touch that dial. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest here with us today, Dr. Michael Klein, here today to talk about, well, a whole lot of things, I think, but most importantly to talk about his new book, Dissident Doctor, My Life Catching Babies and Challenging the Medical Status Quo. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Klein. You're most welcome. So I'm going to just, I hope you don't mind, but I'm 
can I call you Michael? Is that all? Is that all right? To sure. excellent. So so we're on a first name basis. This is fantastic. It's just a good way to start a conversation. So I first of all, congratulations on the book. Um, t- tell me a little bit about the launch coming up, and 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 then we'll just dive right in. But I think on on September the sixth, Sunshine Coast. Uh, there's there's uh, there's something going on. There's the the first launch of the book is on the Sunshine Coast, which is where the publisher resides as well, and uh, it's at the uh, the Art Center in Seashell at seven o'clock, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. Then there are a series of other launches across the country, including at the Toronto Public Library, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, uh, where I'm actually going to be interviewed by uh, Andre Picard. And uh, then there's going to be one in in uh, Montreal where I've spent almost uh, right. 25 years. So, 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 so again, congratulations! And and I and in a way, having read the book, and and thank you for a an engaging, uh, so narrative driven, uh, so many stories, fascinating life that you've lived. Um, you've, you, so thanks for the story and, and the insights and the questions you raised too, but you've been called, you've been called uh, probably my favorite, a lifelong gadfly, uh, a radical physician and a citizen. Can you kind of provide for, for, for our listeners on face to face, a little bit of context for, um, for 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 your diary that you've you've you're now releasing to the world, essentially, dissident doctor. Well, frankly, this book uh, was something I was writing for the kids, and uh, it got it got out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm a, a well-established researcher, and I've written almost 200 scientific articles, but this is my first book. And, of course, you can appreciate that it's a very different experience to write a book that is meant to be accessible to both professionals and the public in general. And I wrote it with that in mind. And it was a bit of a challenge, but I uh, avoid jargon, and uh, and I hope I've been successful at doing that. But I uh, describe what I hope is a through line that uh, links uh, my early growing up to uh, how I decide to be a physician and ultimately what kind of a physician uh, and tie that into some issues that I'm very passionate about. And I was very much influenced in my development as a physician by experiences that I had as a medical student that are rather unusual that uh, that uh, I think uh, shaped me in many ways, including uh, experiences in Mexico near Guatemala, working in an anthropological project, and then uh, spending a a year and a half in Ethiopia, uh, working in a children's hospital and being exposed to midwives. And all of those those, uh, early experiences uh, shaped uh, the kind of physician I would become and the kinds of values that uh, I think are important. You you have a I'm just going to, one of the thoughts there, you've got a great, you've got a great photo in the book where um, you're wearing a shirt that says real, real men love midwives. And, and you, you've, for a scientist who's written 200 scholarly pieces uh, for an academic, you've got a great sense of humor as well. It seems to me based on what I've read and how colored and eclectic and vast your experience is. Um, I mean, I guess there's a question here, but there's also some admiration. How did how did you maintain such a sense of humor? Uh, and was it something that you actually had to lean on from time to time to see you through some of these pretty crazy situations, ER-like situations? 
Are you talking about the politics of, uh, of the practice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair well, question. The, uh, you know, what I, what I learned in, the, in both the research that I've done and in my administrative responsibilities is that you really mustn't take this, uh, take criticism personally, because uh, if you're doing anything worthwhile, you're going to get a lot of criticism. Uh, the midwifery, the midwifery criticism uh, occasionally uh, came even from my own colleagues in family practice. I mean, there was a small group of people in the department that I headed in uh, in Vancouver at BC Children's and Women's Hospitals, where I was head of family practice for ten, more than ten years, um, who just could not fathom the uh, the idea that a head of family practice could be a supporter of midwifery. And there was, in fact, a, uh, a uh, proposal made to have me impeached for that. And, uh, of course, it never went anywhere. But, but still, you know, you, uh, uh, you, know you, you have to maintain your sense of humor. And uh, there are many uh, times when, when uh, uh, trying to run a large department with many different uh, actors, it was essential to... Uh, to maintain that sense of humor, otherwise uh, life became pretty grim, and uh, and I never I never took it that seriously at one level, but at another sure. level I was deadly serious. Well, it seems to me that that there's an insight there, and and I think this is for sure a common thread throughout your book. You know, you you you're bringing. You know, fa you brought family medicine together with maternity care, and I, I love how you reference Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, and you talk about this paradigm shift and how, you know, we're so rooted in our context and our framework and so on, and yet you were, you were, you know, you you push back, you know, you kind of you raged against the machine, I guess, I, I guess you will, and you were able to take the conversation, not only the conversation, but our action to to the next level, and it seems to me that, you know alongside of that a lot of doctors i've met over the years kind of lack a good sense of humor <laughs> and i wonder i wonder if there's this you know you talk a great deal about being able to have conversations and about good family care and about being you know uh, really self-aware it seems to me as a medical practitioner and i sometimes wonder if is that something that's kind of missing from from not not just our system but but healthcare in general this holistic relational approach well, I think that's exactly right. I think that uh, you know one of the uh, the quotes that I that I used at the very beginning of the book is from uh, from Sir William Osler, who uh, who says, uh, if I'm paraphrasing now, but I may have it just about correctly. He says that it it is it is more important to know what kind of patient has the disease than what disease the patient has. And so that that's and that was written in the late 19 1800s. So these ideas are not new, but it's a, it's essential that uh, that even somebody as uh, as formative to what we now consider to be modern medicine, you know, had that idea even even back then. So it's not a new idea from me from me at all. Another way that I think about it, uh, and I think I know what you're talking about, is that um, at some level we may have been taught, and maybe it's still taught, that uh, the doctor should be the dispassionate physician scientist. Right, right, disconnected. And, disconnected, and, and I reject that. I think that uh, 
uh, not only that, but but you should not, in a sense, use your own personal experience and, and life trajectory uh, within the uh, the therapeutic uh, uh, relationship that you have with your patients. I think that's quite wrong. That in fact uh, you you must use your own experience, and it's perfectly legitimate to share some of your own personal experiences. And and sometimes it's impossible not to. So, for example, in right. my uh, in my life, uh, almost 20 years as head of family practice uh, in Montreal at the Jewish General Hospital and the Herzl Family Practice Center, I mean, all my patients knew about. Uh, my wife's illness as a small community, and uh, at many levels, they they were more worried about me than than I than uh, I should have been worried about them. Of course, I was worried about them, but sometimes they wouldn't even allow me to uh, to uh, look after their needs because they were so concerned about about what was happening in my own life. And so those experiences were integrated into my own practice and the. Alternative therapies that we used uh, to help my wife get through her uh, her experience. Uh, you know, Bonnie uh, would have uh, had many problems uh, that she didn't have if she hadn't been able to be exposed to those uh, less conventional therapies. So I I was open to all of that, and so it uh, it it helped a lot. It also helped in my own uh, occasional illnesses uh, to be able to go outside the uh, the Western medical box. You talk about uh, early on in the book. You talk about um, how you integrated soft methods into your practice. Is is that kind of what you mean? Is that synonymous with sort of non conventional approaches? That's right. So I was one of the first doctors in Montreal to uh, begin working with acupuncturists and with massage therapists and with a variety of other so-called uh, alternative therapies. And I even exposed my residents to it because I was running a teaching center and I used to send my residents off to spend time with uh, with acupuncturists and, uh, and, and other people and uh, so that they could deal with their own uh, uh, inherent prejudices, which we all acquired when we were in medical school. You talk about at one point, and I'm going to see if I can pull up a, a quote here, but um, you say something, uh, and it's related to you know some of the groundbreaking work that you've done and episiotomy and so on. But you say, "My crime?" Question mark. I was delivering babies without episiotomy. You're talking about some time you spent at, I believe, at at, at Stanford, and and one of your I don't know, superiors, I guess, calls you into their office and you say, you know, red faced. And I think a little bit of your sense of humor is coming out here for sure. But but basically your crime was for pushing back against the status quo for for not being conventional. You've you've taken a certain amount of heat over that throughout your career. That's right. I mean, uh, you know, when I was exposed to uh, to midwifery in Ethiopia, I actually I actually uh, was uh, learning from midwives in Ethiopia before I actually had my conventional obstetrical clerkship at Stanford Medical School. It's amazing. So what they what they taught me, uh, I thought was normal. And uh, so when I got back to medical school after taking a year and a half off, uh, I had very little left to graduate. But one of them was obstetrics and gynecology that I had to take. So on my first day of my rotation, I was delivering babies under supervision without episiotomy. And um, 
the uh, the, the professor and chair of, of obstetrics and gynecology at Stanford University Hospital tapped me on the shoulder and said, come into my office. And he basically said, if you want to practice primitive medicine, you're going to have to go to the county hospital. And he actually exiled me to the county hospital wow. where I had a perfectly wonderful experience. I won't go through the details. Well, I was that. just going to say maybe maybe the best place for you to be. Well, it was perfect. And of course, this was in the 60s and the academic discipline of family practice hadn't yet been articulated yet in, in, in uh, either the United States or Canada so that, uh, uh, you know, it uh, I, I didn't have a, a label for what it was that I was doing. Right. I was actually, in retrospect, practicing family medicine. But <clears throat> but it was uh, it was. Uh, uh, a wonderful experience, and uh, I was able to actually deliver babies and then look after them. And uh, that was not part of normal uh, normal medical education because everything was siloed, right? The pediatricians did this, the obstetricians did that, and right. so on. Well, and you, and you and you make it very clear in the book too that you you specifically stepped outside of that kind of vertical or that that track of specializing. You actually went from specializing to general practice. And you think there's actually, um, yeah, there's a, a disconnect there for, for, for our sort of specialists, if you will. These days, it's very hard to, um, to um, go from special to general. It goes the other way around. You, you know, you, you start off as a, as a general practitioner or a family physician, and you stay there. Uh, in the old days, a lot of uh, general practitioners went, then went on to specialize, and they, they made some of the very best consultants. And, uh, but I haven't stopped being a pediatrician <coughs> or a um, newborn intensive care specialist. I just added family practice, and I discovered that um, I was really meant to be in family practice. But I never saw a family doctor all the time I was in medical school at Stanford, so I could hardly become one. I'm sure it's hard to find one even now. You know, there's so many things I want to ask you about there, and I, I really do want to talk about mentorship. You you talk a great deal, very affectionately, about a man who who was a significant impact, had a significant impact in your life, in uh, uh, Dr. Waldies, Ezra Waldies, and from 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 Ethiopia. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. But clearly, you're a compassionate listener, and you talk about that in, in in one of the late chapters in the book. You talk about standing in other people's shoes. You talk about self advocacy and how to be a pain in the ass. Actually, I think is is how you end the chapter. Um, do doctors is is that what doctors are kind of missing today, or a lot of doctors is this idea of actually being able to listen well? Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, I think that listening is the essence of family practice done well. And uh, the, the idea that uh, people's stories uh, are essential to making a correct diagnosis is something that we do teach. And, and listening, uh, you know, is very much a part of that. I mean, family doctors... Family doctors uh, often begin to hear patients' stories that are really not about diseases, but are about uh, feelings and about symptoms. And uh, symptoms later 
turn out to be diseases, but the diseases may not be the same diseases that are traditionally labeled uh, in, in conventional specialist practice. They may have the same labels, but the diseases are different, and they, and they often present themselves uh, much, much earlier. And family doctors need to be able to tolerate ambiguity, mm. need to be able to use time as a diagnostic tool. And the, and the way you use time as a diagnostic tool is to listen to people's stories and listen longitudinally. You know, it's, you don't, you don't uh, solve all the problems in the first visit uh, unless you're dealing with trauma, you know, physical trauma or something like that. So, but, listen, so, so listening, listening longitudinally is, is sort of, is looking back, is making connections, is, is, is sort of taking a more holistic approach in a sense. That's, that's right. But the longitudinality is what's important. So you, you hear symptoms and then symptoms evolve and then they become clarified with the passage of time. And you have to be able to tolerate that. If you're a family physician who needs to have everything nicely tidied up and uh, packaged in a 10-minute in a visit, uh, you're going to be unhappy and so will, so will your patients be unhappy. So it sounds like you're, you've been a mentor to many. Um, you, you, you've talked about, you know, learning from midwives in Ethiopia before you had even really, you know, gone through the academic training. I think there's a marvelous lesson there about, uh, I'm an, I'm an electrician by trade actually, and I don't work on the tools anymore, but I spent, uh, you know, 8,500 hours of my early career, uh, as a, as an electrician learning from others, you know, side by side, this kind of, this kind of elbow knowledge. And, and, and it seems to me that, you know, that's clearly been a thread for you, um, can you can you talk a bit more about that? I mean, is that a practice that's being used today? Uh, does that come out more when 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 we're talking about specialists? Uh, is this idea kind of uh, you know I guess uh, of an apprenticeship I guess if you will or an apprenticeship where it's a it's a two way street I suppose is maybe what I'm what I'm kind of talking about. Well, I think that both generalists and specialists today in medicine are an apprenticeship model, and I think the <clears throat> the uh, the uh, the patterning of yourself after somebody that you admire is critically important. Hmm. Uh, if if the person that you're learning from is a humanist, uh, you're likely to become a humanist. If the person that you're learning from is not, then you're likely to pattern yourself after that person as well. So you know, choosing the right kind of teachers. <laughs> Uh, and having the right kind of faculty is is critically important. And uh, you know, I, in the book, I I uh, tell a story of my father's care in uh, in a major teaching hospital. And uh, it, one of the extraordinary things that I noticed was that he was uh, cared for in a coronary intensive care unit, which changed uh, specialists every Friday. And if the uh, the specialist on duty was a humanist, the residents were humanists. If the specialist was not, the residents were not, but they were the same residents. The residents were constant, the specialists changed, and the residents were like chameleons. And uh, they just adopted the approach and values of whoever was the attending for that week. And, uh, you know, I, you know, we have a joke in family practice. There are 
there are three principles of family practice education. The first is role models. The second is role models. And the third is role. There are no other principles. So you, you, you've, wow. got to, you've got to choose your faculty well and, uh, and make sure that you're teaching the right, mentor, the right messages and you're teaching a kind of humanistic professionalism as opposed to a dry, uh, clinically, uh, you know, dry clinical discipline without any, uh, any uh, humanism. Well, it sounds like, it sounds like it's got to be deeply relational. And and there there has to be a face to face component. There's an elbow to elbow component. Yes, it's about mathematics. You talk about mathematics. I love the fact that, by the way, <laughs> there's so many things to to talk about. But uh, I love the fact that you say admit basically that if you tried to get into medical school today, you 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 might not get in. Um, I'm probably <laughs> challenged. <laughs> I think it's wonderful to be able to look back at your career with those type of mathematical challenges. What was it? Einstein? Didn't Einstein say something that uh, the statements of mathematics are certain only when they make no contact with reality, I think was <laughs> something he said. And I think you've you've proven maybe that that's, um, that's true. What about your mentors? What about your role models? So you're a conscientious objector in 1967, I believe. Uh, it, it kind of drives you north. You, you come into Canada and, you know, you sort of never look back in a sense. Can, can you talk about how you got there? I mean, that's a pretty significant uh, step to take as a young man. Clearly a very principled at the time, but I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Well, in the, in the last part of my uh, the book, in fact, it's the last page, I have a, uh, a, uh, a page d- dedicated entirely to mentors. And I have a, a whole series of mentors, and I can name them all, and I can I know what they all have in common, and that is they all had their own struggles with authority, and they all were uh, were um, expressing ideas that were not popular or not conventional, and yet they uh, ultimately uh, uh, were dissident themselves, and uh, and. I came to that realization toward the end of writing this book as to, you know, who are all, who were all these mentors? There, you know, there are about 10 of them. And uh, I, I know all of them. My first mentor was a, a pediatrician at Stanford named Robert Greenberg, who was an, actually an endocrinologist, a pediatric endocrinologist. But he was, uh, I love the way he talked to patients. Mm. And. I love his politics, and he and I marched together against the Vietnam War in uh, in San Francisco, uh, and uh, you know I wanted to be just like him, which is probably why I became a pediatrician. Family practice wasn't available to me at the time, so he was my first mentor. But then I had uh, a whole series of other mentors. In in each case, they were they were individuals. Who contested the uh, the current status quo, as as the subtitle of this book, book suggests? But at the same time, they were uh, they were uh, uh, skilled communicators and were skilled teachers and had values that I uh, admired. So that in each case, that was what made a mentor for me was somebody who I admired as an indiv- as a person. 
When you, you, you talk about um, the brotherhood of man as being one of the, the things that you applied to uh, uh, your, I guess, your pushback against the U.S. government, you'd, you'd tried to use sort of religious uh, language to say, I'm not going to go to Vietnam, I'm not, uh, I'm not the right guy for this role. But you ended up sort of taking this brotherhood of men. Is that sort of what you you talked about earlier? This human, more of a humanist kind of an approach. Is that is that what you mean by that? Because as I said, you know, you talk about compassionate listening and self advocate and those kinds of things that we've talked about before. Seems to again be a, a real consistent thread for you. Well, let me just deal with the army briefly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, isn't that isn't that how they should be dealt with briefly? Yeah. Right. Well. I had many reasons for not wanting to be part of the Vietnam War effort. But in those days, uh, every doctor was drafted, without exception. And uh, the and I also was drafted. And the, the whole uh, story of that is, uh, is a major chapter in the book. I won't dwell on it too long. But critically important is the following. There is a document called the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the document uh, of the U.S. Army that outlines the roles and responsibilities of everybody in the Army from the private to the general. And there is a section uh, on the medical officer. So every medical doctor in the, in the Army is an officer. And that the job of that doctor as specified in the Uniform Code of Military Justice is to support the mission and to return the soldier to combat. And <clears throat> returning the soldier to combat, whether they're really ready to go back or not, because that's the army wants that soldier carrying a gun and, and, and on the line killing people. And so for me, being a, uh, a military doctor was really no different than carrying the gun myself. Mm. And that's why I could not participate uh, in, in, in the war. That was an idea that could not even be fathomed by my draft board. Who, you know, I had a seven-minute hearing. <laughs> so, uh, but, but that was critical uh, for me. And... Uh, Eventually, uh, I was brought in as an officer. I, I was the, either that or being a foot soldier. They told me very clearly, if you don't accept your commission as an officer, we'll, we will draft you as a foot soldier. So I played that game with them, uh, but I also uh, told them very specifically what orders I would and wouldn't follow. And I you know, made very clear what my values were and how incompatible they were with the army's values. And my hope was that they would basically give up on me and uh, decide right. I was more trouble than I was worth. And it took them a few years to figure that out, but, but they did do that. And so in, in, in those days, the, there was an amnesty under uh, 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 President Carter. I didn't get that amnesty because I'd created my own kind of amnesty when the ar army decided that I was indeed more trouble than I was worth. And, and, and so you headed north. Um, I, I, I'd like to hear, too, a little bit about um, 
you know, the, the, the context of the time that you were in, you talk about Pete Seeger uh, and the McCarthy era, and you get into a little bit of that political uh, side of things during the, how, how much influence did that have, would you say, on you as well? You know, you marched with this other, you know, you talked earlier about marching and, and, and uh, conscientious objector, dissident doctor, I mean, you know, push, pushing back has been a part of who you are, it seems, and yet pushing back for the right reasons. I'm uh, just kind of wondering about, you know, your friends at the time, uh, what you were reading, what you were listening to, and so on. How, you know, how influential was that? Well, a lot of this came from my own family and, and, and growing up. You know, my father was an animator at Walt Disney, you know, Bambi, Pinocchio, Fantasia. Right. And uh, he was also a, a, an organizer, one of the organizers of the Screen Cartoonist Guild. And, uh, you know, during the McCarthy period, his early <coughs> union activities and left-wing activities came back, and my mother as well, came back to haunt them. And, uh, you know, we, we were always expecting a knock on the door. Right. And, uh, and uh, sometimes it happened. And uh, so... That whole era uh, was a hard, was a very hard one for the whole family. And as well, there was uh, the distinct feeling from from even before high school that we were other. We, right. we were not. We were not like other kids. And you didn't. You didn't share that with in the fifties. You didn't share that with your with your schoolmates. So I lived a kind of uh, dual life. I, I mean, I had uh, I had my I, I knew children who were coming from families like mine. We they are known as red diaper babies. Right. That was one of my questions to you. I actually thought about starting the interview by saying, "So, Michael, what exactly is a red diaper baby, anyway?" Yeah, that's what it's called. And uh, so, uh, so I was exposed to. Uh, people with those values, but I also went to uh, a high school, the same high school that Philip Roth and Jerry Lewis went to. It's called Weequahic High School in Newark, New Jersey, where values were quite different and where I wouldn't share my family values with my classmates. And so that was difficult mm-hmm. because was I, uh, I was living this schizoid uh, existence, which uh, I think uh, also in many respects uh, led to becoming a doctor in a way. I, this may be retrospective thinking, but when I was looking for you know who I would become, I wanted independence. I didn't mm. want to be. I didn't want to suffer the kind of uh, uh, dependence that my my dad had suffered when he. Uh, was eventually blacklisted and not able to uh, to to work during the McCarthy period, and I, you know, I I remember those days vividly. I, I remember my dad working at home on a draftsman's table, which I still have, the one that he built, that he uses for his cartooning, but but in this case he was working in the middle of the living room under a pseudonym you know, making terrible uh, cartoons uh, under somebody else's name. And I remember all of that. And uh, I didn't want to be in a position to be dependent on anybody else. And I had this notion, perhaps a false notion, 
that uh, being a doctor would allow me that, to have the independence that uh, right. that I wouldn't be exposed to that. Well, in one sense, it seems to me it, it, it prepared you well for the system, but but it also prepared you well to, to, to push back against it. And, and it seems to have worked out pretty well for you. Well, and there's also another kind of paradox, and that is that um, wherever I have been, whether as a, a, a resident, I was always chief resident, and I've always been head of a department, mm. head of a department continuously from 1970. And... Uh, and to be honest with myself, I don't like administration very much. And so what the hell was I doing with all this administration? Right. And the answer must be I, I'd rather work for myself than for somebody else, right. even if even if. Uh, but at the same time, being in those positions allowed me to do things that I might not have able, been able to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Both organizationally, politically, in research terms, uh, yeah. I, I sadly, we're going to have to wrap up our conversation here shortly. I, I, I there's just, I, be, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Um, I wondered if you could, just before we wrap up, I did, I did have one final question. You call, you call your your story a love story, and I wanted to ask you about that. But, but I also wanted to see, could, could you talk about near the end of the book? You do talk about private health care. And it's it is a bit of a warning, I think, uh, you know, for for Canadians, for for globally. Can 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 you can you just unpack that a wee bit? Absolutely. So um, I'm in a unique perspective here. I practiced in Canada before Medicare. I practiced in the United States. I ran a neighborhood health center network uh, in the United States for five years, of course, without universal health care. Mm -hmm. And then I came back to Canada in 1975 when. Uh, where Medicare had been in existence for five years. And I knew very well from practicing in the United States what I didn't want to uh, uh, right. practice. And uh, the decision to come back to the United, from the United States to Canada was to never experience that kind of health care again. Mm. I'm on the board of Canadian Doctors for Medicare, and our objective is to preserve our health care system from encroachments from uh, the American multinationals, American multinationals that are salivating at the Canadian market, and they would just love to uh, get a piece of it. And they're, of course, they already have a piece of it, and uh, we are at risk of uh, of turning into the United States. Now, having having practiced in the United States, clearly, uh, my wife Bonnie and I, of, of all people, don't want to see our Canadian healthcare system turn into. United States. So I put a lot of energy into addressing the issue of uh, avoiding privatization. That doesn't mean accepting the Canadian healthcare system as it is. There are lots of problems, uh, lots of problems with waiting lists and lots of ways of, um, of correcting those problems. But to do so, Canadians have to really recognize uh, what it is that they have, and um, almost all Canadians do, and, uh, and make sure that the, the system is uh, well enough funded and organized. So the, the uh, temptation to develop a hybrid system uh, that uh, allows for uh, more well-to-do people to get to the head of the line will not be what we have in Canada. The essential principle of the Canadian healthcare system is equity. And uh, if we lose equity, 
we really lose the uh, the essential characteristic of mm. the Canadian healthcare system, and that's what's at risk here. So I do write about that in the book, and I feel passionate about pr- protecting it, protecting our healthcare system, but yet but improving the healthcare system within a universal system. And that includes also thinking very seriously now about universal pharmacare and uh, dental care and a lot of other features of our healthcare system that uh, have yet to be developed and are very much needed. It's a great, to me, it's a great metaphor really uh, for, for what, what you've lived the life that you have lived, the, 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 the approach, the universal approach that you've taken. Uh, and, the, and, and frankly, if I can say it, the love of the other or the love for the other in, in, you know, back to Mexico, back to Ethiopia and so on, and just the communities that you worked within, you call it a love story, uh, uh, dissident doctor in the beginning, in the intro, I think even. Um, we're all a part of a love story of one kind or another, it seems to me, for good or for ill. Uh, is that is that a principle? Is that a place we can start? Is that is that too idealistic, Michael? Is that ridiculous of a statement? <laughs> you know, I mean, it seemed to work for you, so I'm I'm just wondering. I think it's a great uh, a great metaphor. The, the, like. Start start with start with love. Is that is that is that the way forward? Yeah, I think that's a great metaphor and good way to start. Thanks so much for your time today. I, I uh, We've been talking with Dr. Michael Klein about his new book coming out very soon. In fact, sorry, available now, uh, Dissident Doctor, My Life Catching Babies and Challenging the Medical Status Quo. I really, really appreciate your time today. I can't believe we, we barely scratched the surface. I mean, we're going to have to do a part two, it seems to me. Well, I'm ready. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 